listeners, we wish you a very happy St. George's Day. That is April 23rd. Why, you may ask, are the Hinlicky Wilson suddenly interested in St. George? It is because we both have lived in a town named St. George, or in Slovak, Svetiur. And April 23rd, St. George's Day, is the release date for my new book, I Am a Brave Bridge, an American Girl's Hilarious and Heartbreaking Year in the Fledgling Republic of Slovakia. But you may notice that <laughs> other than the uh, allusion to St. George I've made, there's very little obvious theological content. So in this bonus episode today, Dad and I will be talking about the book a little bit and why people whose primary interest in our work is theological might nevertheless enjoy reading the memoir. T.C. Smelly Most, You Are a Brave Bridge. That's the Slovak for the title of your book. Tell us why you chose that title. Yes, I am a brave bridge, not the most intuitive kind of title. It is because, indeed, in Slovak, the way you say brave bridge is smelly most. And I discovered this when I was paging through a grammar of Slovak before we moved there. Reader or listener, please understand I was only 16 years old at the time or 17 years old at the time. And I found these two words, smelly for brave and most for bridge. And I told my little brother, who was nine at the time, and we both thought this was extremely hilarious. And so our only Slovak before moving to Slovakia was being able to say, I am a brave bridge. Yasom, smelly most. We thought that was hilarious. <laughs> that isn't why it finally became the title. It became the title because it actually proved to be an extraordinarily good metaphor for what it is to be an international person, not to have a firm homeland on either side, but to be the brave bridge connecting in between. But that is something that unfolds in the course of the whole story. Very cool. It makes me think of Fran Pope Francis's statement that those who build walls without bridges are not Christians. Christians are the one who build walls with bridges. And uh, that takes some bravery, doesn't it? Because when you put a bridge through a, a wall, you are actually making yourself somewhat vulnerable, aren't you? Yeah, or if it's a bridge spanning uh, two banks that are far apart, it's quite cold and windy in between. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a memoir, Sarah. Tell, tell us why you decided to write a memoir and why you wanted to write it, put it out now. Yeah, well, I mean, the joke is hit middle age, write a memoir, huh? But uh, I, I suppose it was like for many people, you do hit midlife and you kind of have a reassessment. You can kind of take a breather and say, OK, well, here's where I am at this point. I've got hopefully about the same amount of time left to go. What does it mean so far? And uh, there's at this point, it's all um, your, your, your opportunities don't fork. They limit. You need to trim things away. Youth is discovering all the possibilities and age is, is doubling down and focusing and mastering something. So I think that was part of it. It was I, I wrote it right as Andrew and Zeke and I were moving back from France to the U.S. And before long, we realized we'd be moving on again to Japan. And there was this Slovak history in the background. And I was just trying to sort out what what does this weird um, international life of mine mean? Why am I still feeling kind of homeless and not belonging anywhere. I mean, it's funny, I wrote it living in Minnesota um, and, uh, you know, has the highest concentration of Lutherans in North America. And I still felt fairly out of place. Uh, I even looked the part and I felt out of place. And um, so I think it was just, uh, you know, that personal need for reassessment. But also it was connected to this um, rather extraordinary flood I've 
what I would like to call restorative grace, where all sorts of things that did get lost along the way in the the growing up and growing to mid-age process were given back to me. And one of the greatest of those was reconnecting with a high school friend, Colleen. We had not been on speaking terms for quite a long time, and then we fixed that, but we weren't able to see each other because we live nowhere near each other. And then I visited with her in person for her mother's funeral, and she managed to unearth every single letter that I wrote to her uh, by hand yeah. or typed and mailed through the post office in Svetiur to her back in rural upstate New York all those years ago. She had kept them despite this long uh, estrangement and then just not seeing each other for so long. And she um, she gave them back to me. I had also kept all of her letters that she sent to me, and I, I got those back to her as well. And so all of a sudden, I had this Slovakia year up close and personal. And, uh, well, I, I think any listener will understand that if in your 40s you go back and find out what you were really like at 17 – you'll be in for some shocks. Yes, I can relate to that, Sarah. I've recently been rereading a volume of Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics that I first purchased and read in 1979, so more than 40 years ago. And as I'm rereading it and looking at my marginal comments, I'm just ashamed. I'm so embarrassed at all the stupid things I said in the margins as I half comprehended what I was reading but that's my story. Let's get back to your story. <laughs> um, so this is a memoir, as you've explained, of uh, midlife taking stock and considering uh, those things um, in your uh, adolescence going on to young adulthood. But this is a theology podcast. Other than the fact that you're a theologian who wrote it, why would our listeners be interested in reading your story? Well, one reason is simply if you if you listeners enjoy listening to me and dad talk, then you'll also have a window into what dad was like as a parent to a teenage girl <laughs> and <laughs> what I was like as a teenage girl to my theologian father. So there is just a, that, um, uh, I would say, rather amusing thing, as well as you'll see a little bit more about um, my mom, dad's wife, and my brother, dad's son. Um, but also, I, I wrote it really as a, a kind of Slovakia forward sort of book, and the um, the central kind of comical narrative thread is this uh, ridiculous series of of uh, romantic ups and downs throughout the story, which I think um, anyone who's appreciative of the sheer silliness of uh, of romance will appreciate. Um, but I didn't want to make it heavy-handedly theological or spiritual. I don't think it really counts as a religious memoir. There's no conversion experience as such. However, those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will realize that it is threaded throughout the entire story. Because frankly, you can't tell a story of a missionary family going to another country and not talk about that. You can't be faced with the legacy of communism in a country and not be faced in that. I was very much embedded in the church life there that was profoundly formative. By the end of the story, I am tipping into the discovery of my vocation as a theologian and ultimately as a pastor as well. So I think um, maybe for people who are tired of the um, boilerplate, I was lost and now I'm found, or um, you're not going to get any exciting sin out of this book, I have to tell you. But maybe if your own experience (laughs) of uh, religious and spiritual development is more subtle, 
this might be a book that resonates more with your own experience than the kind that hits the bestseller list normally. Well, I think that's right. I think the story you've written is a a narrative of personal self-discovery through the ups and downs of your 17, 18-year-old romances with every boy in the village. <laughs> Not quite every boy. Just well, I used to call you the Belle of Bratislava <laughs> in those years. <laughs> um, so it was quite amusing for us as parents to hear the doorbell ring or, or the knock on the door every evening as various young men came to pay homage and ask <laughs> you to go for a walk. And you very, very coldly would say yes to one and no to another. <laughs> I should just say, for anyone listening, for anyone listening, this year was utterly representative of my life to that point and thereafter. <laughs> uh, uh, bookworms with glasses and braces and um, high intellectual aspirations were not normally the center of a male attention. But anyway. But you were that year. That was very interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I think they were more interested in my passport than anything else. But anyway. Probably. But you, you know, uh, here I'll make a theological remark, remark that sex is God's joke on humanity, isn't it? I mean, just the <laughs> fact that that uh, we make such fools out of ourselves, courting one another and, and deciding and not deciding and holding on to our options and lurching for an option. You know, it's just, mm. it's all quite comic, I think. Yeah, I mean, you really experience um, love infatuation from its most shallow to its most profound forms. It's really something that happens to you rather than something that you do. I know, Dad, a big theme of your, your work, especially on theological anthropology, is patience as well as agency, that we are, are objects of action in the world, not only actors in the world. And I think everyone experiences that most powerfully and painfully in the experience of falling for someone, falling in love, falling out of love, um, you know, and all the, the ups and downs, as you said, that go with that. There must be, for all of its potential for pain and destruction, and I mean, nobody, there's no better way to mess up your life than with, with uh, bad decisions around that. But at the same time, it's somehow, I think, profoundly iconic of how little in charge we are of our own lives and our own desires. And that can be, I don't even know how to say it without it be sounding really cheesy, but it can be something that directs us towards the, the greatest object of all desires in an Augustinian sense. Absolutely. And, you know, I, it makes me think, and as a pastor, whenever I've done premarital counseling, I've always stressed uh, the statement of Jesus, what God has joined together. Let no one put asunder, beginning with the two of you, young people, getting ready to get married. Uh, and the religious or faith uh, perception that uh, I have fallen in love, I have been brought together, I have been united by a, a, a higher divine power that supervenes my own willingness, uh, I think is such an important perspective uh, to uh, of this notion of patience that you're talking about for you, uh, people to uh, understand about 
what draws them together and what keeps them together. Yeah. And I think on the flip side of that, I realize, and again, this is definitely a middle-aged view, not a youthful view. I had to learn this the hard way like everyone else, which is that when you hold on to a relationship that's not meant to be, or you try to make a relationship happen that's just not going to happen, it actually is an exercise of bad faith. And I know that's the last yeah. thing anybody miserably in love wants to hear, but I can see back very clearly how little trust I had and and how, you know, determined mm. I was to take things into my own hands. And, you know, if if you're lucky, actually, if you're blessed, it gets taken away from you anyway. And you're forced to hold out until the right thing is given. And um, I don't, I, I uh, you know, almost all Christian talk about courtship and love and sexuality and route to marriage is, is pretty creepy as far as I can tell. And I think that's why mainstream churches just tend to fall silent entirely, which doesn't do anyone any favors. But I think there is a real place to try to help young people especially see you don't need to cling to this so tightly. You can wait. The gift will come. The gift will come. Don't force it. Um, and don't and don't settle for cheap versions of that, whether it's pornographically or in living together or, you know, other other versions that are seizing what ought to be given freely both by God and by the other person. You know, Sarah, that's exactly the point. Patiency is patiently waiting. And false agency is giving up on that patience and seizing uh, the initiative and taking matters into one's own hand and seizing the kingdom by force, as Jesus put it. And that's exactly what you don't do in faith. In faith, you uh, let God be God and let him uh, do the joining together that uh, needs to be done in your life. Right. And as listeners will have figured out by my married name being Wilson and not something obviously Slovak sounding, it was not any of these charming boys in Svetiur who ended up being the gift that God intended for me. And we are all, all, all much better off for that. <laughs> Including the suitors, the Svetiur suitors. All right. So what else? What are what other themes appear in your memoir? Well, I think for me, the most important theological discovery I made was from spending some time learning about communism and trying to understand what it meant, why it was desirable, why it was enforced, again, uh, not waiting for the the um, the blessed proletariat community to emerge, but seizing that kingdom by force. And of course, reading about its impact on the church, um, much in the way of persecution, but also in the way of tactical compromise. And I think what really came through to me most powerfully in the end was recognizing that when we talk about the omnipotence of God, it has nothing to do with the aspirational totalitarianism of political systems. And it would be very easy, I think, to confuse the one with the other, because if God is all-knowing, that makes God into a surveillance state, right? You know, he's filming and recording you at all times, and you will be accountable for not just every word you say, but every thought that you have. I mean, like George Orwell couldn't have imagined it better. Um, um, but then that's not the biblical story, and that's not even what biblical omnipotence means. And so to see how starkly the difference lies between a God who could be totalitarian and clearly refuses to be, and a state that desires to be totalitarian and fails but sure tries, um, I, I think I just got a new appreciation for the very... Um, um, 
for the embedded freedoms that God actually grants to wills other than his own. And I think it was only by coming from the negative example rather than from the the boosterish American, you know, we have free will and we can do whatever we want uh, because God respects that. It's up to you to choose um, kind of thing. I, maybe as a Lutheran, I could only appreciate freedom through the back door as the alternative to totalitarianism rather than directly as an assertion of a human right or something. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I had a parallel experience to you in those years in this respect that uh, uh, as a family, we left the United States in 1993 at a period in history in which uh, I was getting, speaking for myself, I was getting pretty disgusted with the de degeneracy of American freedom, uh, the cultural degeneracy uh, of American freedom. And um, I was looking for an alternative. And uh, uh, so the exposure to uh, the new experience of freedom in the Slovak people that we were up close and personal with in those years uh, was really quite an interesting laboratory uh, to see how some deeply mourned the loss of security. Uh, I even had relatives uh, um, who were churchgoers, uh, pious, faithful churchgoers and suffered somewhat uh, under the repression of uh, religion during communism. But after several years of freedom, told me how terribly they missed beautiful golden communism because they missed the social security that the communist state provided. Uh, that was the attitude of a lot of the older generation the younger generation was eager to jump into freedom, uh, but just in all the degenerate ways that I was regretting about the United States that I had left. Uh, and so it was a very interesting laboratory uh, in this respect. I think after living there for a number of years, um, I became deeply frustrated with the, um, the control the bureaucracy had over human life. And uh, by the time we returned to the United States, I was positively longing for the uh, relative freedom from state control that we enjoy in the United States. Yeah, that's that's always the thing with freedom, right? <laughs> by definition, it's something that can be abused and probably will be abused. And I think the, the bureaucratic or the communist or the theocratic instincts are all, no, no, we can't possibly have people waste their lives or make bad choices or fail to live up to their potential. We have to force them into using yeah. their 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 gifts well. And um, that just doesn't work. In fact, it's worse. It's so much worse, um, whether it's a theocratic or a bureaucratic um, form of forcing people into things. And that just seems we, to be We the, must drive the people to happiness with an iron fist. Right. I think that statement goes back to Napoleon. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I, I suppose the undercurrent then that I also got from from studying about communism and the totalitarian impulse is that it appears to despise God as the opiate of the masses, but it really despises human beings. It just, yeah. these systems hate humans so much. They hate the way we treat each other. Um, they, they hate the way we, we waste our natural gifts, the way that we don't know how to use freedom well. But the final conclusion is better to stamp us into industrial cookie cutter conformity and make us all into Lego blocks or replaceable pieces of each other. And and somehow that is actually a better good than wasted or abused freedom. And it's 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 horrifying what it does to people. George Orwell was not wrong in 1984 in his depiction of what it does. Just watch some some video from the Republic of North Korea. Oh yeah. To see the uniformitarianism. Yeah. 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 It yeah. is it's a interesting laboratory in that respect. Okay, so the main thing you learned as a theologian was the to uh, resist the siren song of uh, Marxism and uh, appreciate the importance of for human dignity of basic freedom. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I would say in that particular sense. Uh, there's also, as the, I've alluded to, there's some learning about the nature of grace as a restorative gift and about the, the role of human love and sexuality, relationships, and all these kind of things. So uh, there, there, and there's one, uh, I'll, I'll challenge listeners out there to find, there is one very subtle allusion to justification by faith. So if you can find it, send me a line and I'll give you a prize. I don't know what that prize will be. but uh, I think you should tell our listeners... Uh, you know, a couple of anecdotes from the memoir. And the one that uh, sticks out to me that would be worth, you know, just sharing a little bit about was the trip you took up north to learn how to ski with a couple of the boys, <laughs> including the one that you were head over heels for. Yeah, well, literally on that trip, because I'd never skied <laughs> before. <laughs> I don't I don't know how uh, enjoyable the anecdote is without all the build up to it but we had uh, had, had seemed to be uh, me and this this uh, boy and then our, our, our eternal companion another pastor's kid they uh, they the two boys invited me to go skiing with them for the ski week and they'd been skiing since they were like 3 and I had never and I am not coordinated anyway and it was just a week of nonstop humiliation and falling <laughs> again and again. And then like the, the time I finally, like I just sent them away and stayed on the bunny slopes just to try to learn the basics of, you know, like going downhill and not falling. And I finally got it. And I was like, all right, I can do this. And so then when we, we met up together again, I was I was angry and cocky and I was going to show off. And so I started going down and I made my first turn and I'd learned to make a good strong turn, you know, so that you would actually successfully change direction. The problem is I made such a strong turn that I turned myself all the way around and all of a sudden I was facing uphill and sliding <laughs> downhill backwards. <laughs> Needless to say, that did not last long. Pride goeth before a fall, and in the fall, and after the fall. <laughs> I just <laughs> sprawled out humiliatingly on this snowy ski slope in front of the person I most wanted to impress. <gasps> Thank you, Dad, for making me relive that. You know, last time I visited Slovakia, the the families who are, are, are connected to us there, they brought it up. They're like, hey, you remember that ski strip? <laughs> So obviously it's continued <laughs> to live in their memories as well. 
Now, didn't Sarah, didn't you share this memoir with some of those young people that you grew up with there? Oh, I sent it to everyone there. You know, it, this, this is the thing about being a memoirist is that you are not only exposing your own life, you're exposing other people's lives as well. I don't think anyone else comes off looking bad. I think I'm definitely the villain of the story. But um, yeah, I did want to make sure that they all had had a chance to read it and um, give their their imprimatur on it. And, and, and I got that. So. Oh, wonderful. Okay. I'd like to ask you a couple questions, Dad, actually, in connection with this. So, um, I mean, the whole the whole reason we went is for you to be a missionary. Uh, just tell us something about that. Had you longed to be a missionary, or was that specific to Slovakia? And how weird was it then, as it still is now, to be a missionary? People have lots of negative associations with that. Yeah, and in fact, the term missionary was only partially acceptable to my hosts there because they thought of themselves as, of course, a Christian people who were hardly in need of a foreign missionary. So there was always scare quotes put around the word missionary. Uh, But in fact, it's true. I was sent by the Slovak Zion Synod of the ELCA uh, initially, and then later I was adopted by the Division of Global Mission of the ELCA. Uh, So I was officially a missionary. But a missionary today is not what a missionary was 100 or 200 years ago. Uh, It's more of a partnership between churches in which the assistance of one church to another church is deemed to be valuable. Uh, And my uh, going there originated in this way. Uh, My father got sick and had to retire prematurely from the ministry. And um, I was looking for a project I could do with him to keep his mind active and uh, keep him psychologically motivated. And I had a friend who um, had a copy of the dogmatics, the dogmatic theology of the presiding bishop of the Slovak Lutheran Church. So I, I got a copy of this, and I gave it to my father and said, Dad, let's translate this. You know the language, I know the theology, and we'll just figure out how to put this into English. And we worked on that for a year, maybe two years. And Which then the author of that? this book, uh, Mikalko's um, oh. Dogmatica, yeah. And uh, so Mikalko, the bishop, was going to come to the United States for a visit, to receive an honorary doctorate at Muhlenberg College, I think in 1988 or something like that. And uh, so uh, Dad and I uh, uh, went down to Pennsylvania to meet him. And, uh, well, that led to a very nice conversation. And So we said, can we come to Slovakia and meet with you to go over some translation issues? Oh, of course. And so... In those days, you know, under Brezhnev communism, it was not so easy to get into Slovakia. So we had to get a, an official invitation and a, a visa a permission to enter. It was all, I, I was in communist Czechoslovakia in May 1989, wow. just months before the fall of communism. And it was it was a fortress. I mean, you going through the border with towers and machine guns and searchlights and guards and German shepherds and all this stuff. It was really quite intimidating. 
Uh, and then when we crossed the border, we had to uh, uh, transfer so much, so much American dollars into worthless, worthless Czechoslovak crowns and so forth. And then I was assigned a ch- an agent who would uh, accompany me for the whole time and spent the wow. 10 days were there. He was trying to get me to make a statement about religious freedom in the country, which I declined to give. Um, and I gave a lecture at the seminary. And uh, after the lecture, some of the students spoke to me in English and said, you have no idea what's really going on here. And then they were hushed up and hustled away and stuff like that. So it was quite a traumatic experience. And we should clarify, the statement on religious freedom was one of these really ironic communist things, is that they wanted the whole world to believe there was religious freedom, when in fact there wasn't any at all. That's They wanted you mm-hmm. to say, yes, there is religious freedom here. And of course, that's exactly what the students were saying to me in this outburst, which I'm sure got them into trouble. So anyway, but the point is, is that I met the leadership of the church there. We made relationships and friendships and so forth. And uh, to my amazement that fall, as I watched the Berlin Wall fall and the Velvet Revolution take place, uh, the fall of the Soviet bloc and so forth, within a couple of years, I had continuing conversations. And we got, I think in 1992, an invitation to... uh, if we were to come to the country and visit my father's relatives, would we please stop and visit with the faculty? Would I would please stop and visit with the faculty in Bratislava? And I did. And out of that meeting came the invitation. If the American church can send you, we would love to have you on the faculty. Hmm. So that's how that all happened. Wow. And you've alluded to just how intensely challenging those those six years were. So what was it like for you? You know, you you and mom, of course, read my drafts as I went through. You found actually all the letters that the two of you wrote to our my grandparents along the way. That was a hugely important supplement to the letters that I wrote to Colleen. So what was it like for you to, to relive, obviously through my eyes, so intensely that first encounter of living in Slovakia? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, for any parent to discover the inner thoughts of their 17-year-old daughter (laughs) in any circumstance would be somewhat um, interesting, shall we say, right? (laughs) As a mother of a 15-year-old son, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, putting that aside, you know, it was just so fun to read your memoir and relive all those experiences, so many of which we shared with you in so many different ways. And it was, you know, both a kind of a falling in love with this ancestral culture and uh, working through a really difficult language barrier. Uh, I thought I knew some Slovak when I got there, and I didn't. It was the <laughs> um, it was fragments of the peasant language of my grandparents from a hundred years earlier, and here I was suddenly circulating in university circles, and I was feeling pretty tongue-tied most of the time, and then I had the problem of of, of clashing between German in my head and Slovak in my head. I had <laughs> been fairly conversational in German, but as your my forty-something-year-old brain was trying to become fluent in Slovak, it constantly clashed with German. 
So I would begin a, a sentence in Slovak and finish it in German, or I would start a sentence in German and finish it in Slovak, and everybody thought I was nuts. I thought I was going crazy actually at the time. So, but people were very kind. Yeah, they were. I, that was for me one of the most important experiences I had there is how we were just really embraced immediately, above all by the Filo family, Julius Filo, who later became presiding bishop of the Lutheran Church in Slovakia. But they just. They really cared about us, and they really took us in, and they made sure that we were all right with a kind of warmth and and uh, attention that I have rarely experienced in any other community in my whole life. Yeah. For all the, the repression and suffering that goes not just with communism, but with living in a more traditional society, and, and those can be real. Boy, there's something to be said for the intact village life. I actually think that's why my... Um, later in the spring nightly outings with the boys was not actually dangerous. When I look back on that now and think, oh my God, what was I thinking of? But actually I think the fabric <laughs> of life was sufficiently intact that I intuitively knew this was fine and it was fine I and mean, nothing bad came of it. So uh, what would you say, dad, looking back on your, your uh, you and all and mom and Will spent six years there. What did you gain theologically and spiritually from that experience that you don't think you would have gotten any other way? I think one thing is that the Christian faith can survive under any political regime. And in some ways, the uh, legally guaranteed religious freedom in the United States has worked to make American Christianity shallow and flaccid. Uh, whereas people who lived the Christian life under communism had to count the cost they knew what they they were they were going to pay a cost for being a Christian, and they did, and they counted it and they paid it. You know the cost of discipleship in Bonhoeffer's famous phrase. So I thought I learned an appreciation of that, but I also learned on the other side the tragedy of European Christianity. Uh, you know Americans are vaguely aware of this, but um, I discovered that the word. Uh, in German, Bekenntnisloss, uh, Slovak, there's a, a, a term that means the same thing. But it means, we would say in America, oh, I'm not religious or I'm none or something like that. The European expression is, I have no confession. Uh, I don't ad adhere to a confession. And this term originates because of the wars of religion in the 17th and 18th centuries between the Protestants and the Catholics. And I don't think American Christians are sufficiently aware of the tragic self-destruction of European Christianity in which uh, Protestants and Catholics warring with each other uh, simply discredited the religion of the Prince of Peace in the minds of so many thinking Europeans. I think that's something I became deeply to appreciate. I always tell the anecdote, Sarah, the first time I was in Bratislava in 1989, as I mentioned earlier, we were talking in German with this young pastor who was taking me on a tour of the old city. And you know how in Europe there's a, a church on every corner. And he would, we would pass a church and he would say, this used to be one of our churches. That used to be one of our churches. And I, was, I didn't really fully understand the history like a typical American. 
And I was thinking maybe the communists took away all these churches. So finally I asked him, when did you lose all these churches? And he looked at me indignantly and he said, in der Gegenreformation, in the Counter-Reformation, <laughs> 300 years earlier, the Lutherans had lost these churches. And I said, you know, Americans can't remember yesterday. And these <laughs> Europeans live with memories going back three, four, five hundred years. It's, it's really quite a difference in consciousness. So I think that was one of the main things I learned. Yeah, I have, I have a similar anecdote to that one in my book. And also, I will just add, it's because the church continued to be so tightly wound up with the state. And I have to say, as an American trained on the separation of church and state, I find this astonishing and really, really deadly for the church to be just a, a pet of the state. And that's also one of the reasons it could be recruited into religious war, um, because, you know, the state of Sweden is Lutheran, but the state of Poland is Catholic or whatever, you know, so... Um, Exactly. Let me make one more comment about that. I had a debate one time with a German uh, about the virtues of the American and uh, European uh, relations of church and state. And the German said to me, how can you ever preach uh, if you are dependent upon the congregation for your financial support? And I said, Yes, it's a challenge, but at least when we preach, we have an audience. <laughs> My response is going to be, how can you preach when you're dependent upon the state for your salary? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I, you know, I, I, of course, for family reasons, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your memoir. But I do think uh, it's quite instructive uh, in, a, in a number of areas, religiously, spiritually, coming of age, and of course, finally, theologically. One of the great dramas of the 20th century was the conflict between Marxism, Leninism, and the so-called free world. That may sound to some people like ancient history. I wouldn't be surprised, however, if that narrative makes a comeback. And so this is a, this reading this memoir is food for thought in that respect. Great. Well, that's what I really I wanted it to be. So uh, good. I'm glad that came through. Well, thanks, Dad. It was fun to talk to you about this. Yeah. Thanks for writing it, Sarah.